0: Well hello Friends Church, it's so good to be with all of you. My name is Chris Ward and I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And as we begin here today, I want to ask you a question, okay? And the question is this, does God still stay true to His promises even if we are always true to Him? Can God be expected to still be faithful to His promises that He has made to us even if we are always faithful to Him? That's the question that we're going to seek to answer today. If you have your Bibles handy, I'd encourage you right now to take them and turn to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16 is where we are. And as you turn there, I'm going to actually share with you a verse from another book of the Bible. In just a second, we're going to put Romans chapter 15 verse 14 on the screen. And here the Apostle Paul is speaking, one of the early followers of Jesus. And he is talking here about the importance of the Bible and why God has given us the Bible. And this is what he says, Romans 15, 14. He says, such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. Let me say that again. It says, such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. And if I could paraphrase what it is that Paul says here, I'd I'd paraphrase it something like this. What Paul is telling us here is that one of the reasons why God has given us this book is he has given us this book to teach us about God. One of the reasons that God has given us his word is he has given us his word to teach us about himself. And that is, brothers and sisters, that's why I love this book so much. You know, I know I'm known around here as being the, the guy who talks a lot about my love for the Bible. And listen, I make no apologies for that. But I want you to understand that one of the reasons I love this book so much is because I love God so much. One of the reasons I love this book so much is because I love Jesus so much. And I want to get to know him better. I want to know what he's like. I want to know his interests. I want to know his dislikes. I want to know who God is. I want to know God. And this book right here, this is the primary tool that God has given us by which we know him. And that's why this book is so important to me, and that's why this book is so important to us, to God's people. And along those lines, that is also why anytime we read our Bibles, it's really good to ask this one question. And the question is this, what does what I'm reading, what does it teach me about God? What does what I'm reading teach me about God? I I know many of you know this, but I just want to say it anyway. You know, the main character of the Bible is not us. And it's not the Israelites, and it's not Moses, and it's not Paul. Of course not. No, the the main star of the Bible is God. And I believe every single page in this book teaches us something about who God is. And that's exactly the perspective that we're going to take towards today's passage. Today we're going to see what this passage we're looking at today teaches us about God. Today we're continuing our journey with God's people, the Israelites, is God takes them from their slavery in Egypt and begins the process of leading them to the promised land. And the context of the passage we're looking at today in Exodus chapter 16 is that God has just performed what is probably one of the greatest, most significant miracles recorded for us in the Bible. And that is the parting of the Red Sea. When God defies the laws of physics, right? He defies the laws of nature to display his power and to display his care and his concern for his people. And it's off the high of this miracle. It's with this extraordinary miracle as a backdrop that we see God do something that he sort of has a tendency of doing, not just in the Bible, but in our lives as well. And that is that God leads his place to people to a place of extreme uncertainty. God leads his people to a place of supreme discomfort. Pick it up in verse one of Exodus chapter 16 and you'll see what I mean. This is what we read. It says, a whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of sin which is between Elam and Sinai in the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of mead and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And we'll stop right there. And so what is it that we read here? Well, what we read here is, is right with this extraordinary miracle of the Red Sea as a backdrop. God leads the Israelites into a desert. The, the desert here is referred to as a desert of sin. And just so you know, sin here has nothing to do with sinfulness. Instead, it refers to a Sinai. It's, a, it's related to the word for Sinai, which is a mountain where God is leading them to. So, so God leads the Israelites into this desert. And as we see here, the Israelites, they begin complaining about food. They begin worrying about what they're going to eat while they're in the desert. And so as it says here, they begin grumbling about that. And on its surface, it looks like this grumbling is just over the top, right? I mean, they say here, if only God had killed us in in Egypt. At least in Egypt, we had food to eat. Why did God bring us to the desert? Did he just bring us to the desert to kill us? Did he uh, free us from slavery in order to just starve us to death? And it looks as though this complaining is just over the top. And if you know anything about your Bibles, you know that the Israelites, they, they grumble and they complain a lot in their journey to the promised land. And it's for that reason that I think sort of our knee-jerk reaction when we read this is to sort of roll our eyes at the Israelites here and to judge them and to criticize them and go, oh, come on, Israelites, where's your faith, right? You just witnessed this incredible miracle, the parting of the Red Sea. Do you think that God would really perform that miracle just to to starve you in the desert? Where is your faith? And and sort of our knee-jerk reaction here is, is to judge and criticize the Israelites. But I'll tell you something. I don't think we should be so quick to criticize the Israelites here. I don't think we should be so quick to judge God's people here. And the reason why is is there's a few things we need to realize about this particular scene here. The first thing that we need to realize is we need to realize the size of this group that has entered into the desert. Uh, This is no small group of Israelites here. This is no, you know, Oregon Trail family of five that's complaining here. We get the impression that actually this group, it numbered into the millions at this particular point. In fact, back in Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, we are explicitly told that the number of Jewish men who left Egypt from slavery was 600,000. That's 600,000 men, it says, in addition to women and children. That's why a lot of scholars believe that maybe as many as 2 million Israelites are being led into the desert here. That's a lot of mouths to feed. So that's the first thing that we have to understand. And then the second thing that we have to understand is we have to understand just how scary the desert is when it comes to the subject of food. I don't know the last time that you've been in the desert, but the desert is not exactly filled with fresh produce. You know, uh, in fact, we'll put a picture on the screen of, of, of the actual desert that's probably being talked about here. And I look at that picture and I don't see any Chick-fil-A's on the horizon. Do you? I don't even see any Arby's on the horizon, right? The desert is a scary place when it comes to the subject of food. And when you put these two things together, hopefully we can understand what's going on with the Israelites here. Two million of them have just entered into this very scary place where food is hard to come by. Two million of them are are entering into this place where they know that they're likely going to spend days there, if not weeks, if not months there. And you have to imagine, right, that among these two million Israelites, there are mothers caring for their babies. There are fathers worried about their growing boys and girls. And yeah, sure, Egypt was tough. But at least in Egypt they had food. Maybe they weren't sitting around pots of meat like they talk about here, but their physical needs were provided for. And I'm sure many of them are thinking, what's better? Is it better to be free and have no food or or, or to be slaves and have food? It's it's a tough decision, isn't it? I mean, can you say that if, if you were in their positions, you wouldn't maybe grumble a little bit? You wouldn't complain a little bit? You wouldn't be maybe a little bit anxious? I know I would be. And the reason why I know I would be is I look at how I've reacted to the deserts of my own life. I know how how I've reacted to the deserts of of, of my own existence, the the tough times that I have been through. You know, there's something interesting about the theme of the desert in the Bible. If you do a search in the Bible for all the times where the desert is mentioned, you will see that there's more than meets the eye when the Bible talks about the desert. Yes, the desert is often a physical place in the Bible, but it's also often more than that. It's also a symbol of something. You see, in the Bible, the desert is often used as a symbol for those seasons in life when things get tough, when things get difficult. The desert is often used in the Bible as a symbol of times when we as God's people are taken from comfortable surroundings to discomfort and to uncertainty. Remember, where was Jesus himself tempted? He was tempted in the desert, right? The desert is often a symbol of those times when the rug is pulled out from underneath us and we are surrounded by unpredictability. In other words, what do you think these last 12 months have been? These last 12 months have been a desert, right? We have been in a desert for almost an entire year here. And that's why as I look at how I've responded to the past 12 months of unpredictability and uncertainty, I I don't fault the Israelites here. I mean, I remember especially at the beginning of all of this, there were serious questions I had about how are we going to make it through all of this? How is God going to provide for all of this? And I I know I'm not alone in this. I mean, can, can any of us say we didn't grumble a little bit over the past 12 months? We weren't a little bit anxious. I think all of us were. And that's why this particular passage speaks to us so much. As I said, the main problem that the Israelites are going through right now is their their problem of food in the desert. And in just a second, we're going to see how God solves this problem. But before we do that, there's something else really interesting that God does. And I want to point it out to you. Look with me at verse 9 of Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16, verse 9. This is what we read. It says, then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. Let me read that again. It says, then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. Okay, I want you to get that scene in your mind. Here are these two million Israelites. They've just entered into this scary desert. And they're grumbling and they're complaining. So one of the leaders, a man by the name of Aaron, he stands up in front of these Israelites. And he addresses them. And as he talks to them, we're we're told all of a sudden there's this cloud that appears on the horizon. And in this cloud, we're told that the glory of the Lord appears. Meaning in some way, shape, or form, God himself appears to the Israelites. I mean, I'm sure it's a sight to, to see. But here's what I want to point out to you, okay? According to this passage... Where is it that this cloud appears? According to this passage, where is it that God appears to the Israelites? You see it in verse 10, right? It says this. It says, while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. It says they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing to the cloud. What's going on there? Well, what we see here is that as God appeared to the Israelites, he didn't have the Israelites turn around and appear at the Red Sea, the place of their last miracle. What what good would that have done? The Israelites already know that God is present in the Red Sea. So no, where where does God appear here? Well, what we see is God appears here further into the direction of their uncertainty. He appears here further in the direction of their anxiety. He, He appears here further in the direction of their fear. He appears further in the direction of the desert. And there's a point that God is making in that. As I said, every, every passage in Scripture, I believe, teaches us something about God. And in sort of the second half of my message here, I'm going to share with you a few lessons that this story teaches about God. You can write these down if that you want, we'll unfold them one at a time. But the first lesson that this passage teaches us is this it's that our God is still God in the desert. It's that our God is still God in the desert. You know why the desert is so scary to us, brothers and sisters? You know why times of unpredictability and uncertainty, you know why they they strike so much anxiety within us? It's because those are the times when we are forced to live by faith and not by sight. It's because those are the times when we are forced to live entirely by our faith in God and and not by what we can see going on around us. You know, the theme of today's message is, is that God is a promise keeper. That's the lyric of Waymaker we're looking at today. God is a promise keeper. And all throughout scripture we see dozens if not hundreds of promises that God has made for us. In fact I'm going to share with you just a a few of my favorite ones. We'll put these on the screen. One promise that God makes to us for example is God promises in his word that he's going to provide for us. We see this in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus says seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and everything you need will be given to you. God promises to provide for us. Another thing we see in the Bible is that God promises to be with us. We see this in Hebrews 13 when God says I'll never leave you or forsake you. God promises to be with us. God also promises to help us through each day. God promises to protect us. God promises to work everything out for our good. There are dozens, if not hundreds of promises that God makes to us in the Bible. But here's the deal, okay? Here's the deal. It's really easy to see how God is gonna stay true to his promise to provide for us when our business is going good or we still have our job. But it's a lot harder to see how God is gonna stay true to his promise to provide for us when we have to close our business or we lose our job. It's really easy to see how God is going to work everything out for our good when everything in our life is going good, right? But it's a lot harder to see how that's going to happen when everything is going tough, when the bottom drops out, when we enter into the desert. And that's when we start to doubt God. And that's when anxiety and grumbling and complaining sets in. You see, when, when things get tough, We have a tendency as human beings, as God's people, to put our faith more in what we can see than in God. And that's why when things get tough, we have a tendency to limit God. And we have a tendency to think that there are some situations that even God himself can't figure out. And I think that's what's going on with the Israelites here. You know, there are some pastors who think that the Israelites forgot about the miracle that God did for them on the Red Sea. And and that's why they were concerned here. I personally don't think that. I mean how could they forget that miracle? I don't think that's what's going on here. Instead, so I think what happened is this. I think when the Israelites entered into the desert, I think that in their mind they were like, we're a new territory. This is a whole new ball game, right? I mean, yeah, God can part the Red Sea. That's great. Yeah, God can split an ocean in two. That's awesome. But now we're in the desert. How in the world is God going to feed two million people on a daily basis in the middle of a desert? You see, they thought they were in a situation that even God himself couldn't figure out. And that's why God does what he does here. By appearing to the Israelites in the direction of their fear and uncertainty. By appearing to the Israelites further into the desert, what God is saying to the Israelites is, listen, I'm still God in the desert. I'm still God in this place. So the desert may seem scary to you. The desert is still my territory. It's still a part of my world. It's still my domain. I'm still God in the desert. And God says the same thing to us. I don't care how dire. I don't care how impossible. The situation you may be going through seems to you, brothers and sisters, God can, and he will get you through it. There's absolutely nothing that you are facing, no desert that you are going through, that God is not God of. God is the God of good times in our life, and he's also the God of the desert. He's in charge through it all. If there is nothing that we have learned from the past 12 months, I hope we've at least learned that. But here's the tough part, and it is the tough part. And this is also the second thing we learn about God in this passage. If the first thing that we learn about God is is that God is still God of the desert, the second thing we learn about God is this. It's that God promises to give us what we need each day and not more than that. God promises to give us what we need each day and not more than that. And we also see that in this story. As I said, the main problem facing the Israelites is food, right? How is God going to feed two million people on a daily basis in the middle of the desert? Well, God has a plan for that. Continue on in this passage in verse 11. This is what we read it says this, it says, the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came down and covered the camp and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. And an omer, by the way, was a unit of measurement that equaled about three pounds or so. And so what is it that we see here? Well, what we see here is exactly what we just talked about, right? God has not brought the Israelites into the desert just to have them starve to death. God has not brought the Israelites into the desert just to leave in this particular situation. No, God has a plan for his people. God is going to provide for his people. Just like with the Red Sea, the desert is going to be a place where God is going to perform a miracle for his people. And that's exactly what we see here. And so what does God do? Well, every single day there is this miracle that God provides for his people in order to feed them. And the way that God does it is this. He says, every single morning when you wake up from here on out, there is going to be this edible bread-like substance that appears on the floor of the desert. And that's going to be the food for you Israelites while you're in the desert. Every single day, there is going to appear this edible bread-like substance on the floor of the desert for you Israelites to eat. Now we also see in this passage that there's going to be some quail. But we learn later on in the Bible that the quail is not every single day. The quail is only every once in a while. But practically every single morning there is going to be this bread. In verse 14 we're told that the bread, uh, what the bread looks like. And we're told that it looks like flakes of frost on the ground, it said. And I read that to someone not too long ago and they said, You mean God provided frosted flakes to the Israelites every morning? And that's sort of the picture we get here. God provided frosted flakes to the Israelites every single morning. And these frosted flakes, this bread-like substance, it's referred to as manna. And the reason why it's called manna is because we read in verse 15 that when the Israelites first see it, they say, what is it? And the Hebrew for what is it sounds like manna. So that's how it got its name. But the point is this, God provides, right? God provides. In this desert, in this place where food is hard to come by, God provides a daily miracle for his people. God gives them food to eat. But here's what's interesting, okay? And this is what's interesting. As we read on in this passage, what we find out is that God only provides enough of this bread for each family to make it through that day. Each day with the exception of Friday, God only provides enough food for each family to make it through that day. Now on Friday, something else is going on. On Friday, God actually provides enough for each family to make it through two days. And the reason why is because the day after Friday is the Sabbath and God didn't want his people to work on the Sabbath. He didn't want them to have to collect food on the Sabbath. And so on Friday, God provided enough manna to last until Sunday. But each day, God really only provided enough food for that day. In fact, we read on and we see that some people tried to cheat the system. They tried to keep a little bit left over until the next day. And this is what happened. Verse 20 of Exodus 16. It says, however, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and it began to smell. So Moses was angry with them." So this manna, it spoils overnight. So God only provides enough food for each day. You know what that means? That means that while they were in the desert, the Israelites were completely reliant upon God every single day. Every single day that they were in the desert, the Israelites had to completely depend upon God for their food. They had to completely depend upon God for their life. I want you to think about that for a second. Parents especially, I want you to think about that. Can you imagine going to bed each night knowing that your cupboards were bare? That yes, you you were able to feed your family for that day, but you had absolutely nothing left and you were completely dependent upon God to provide for that next day. That, That would raise your anxiety just a little bit, wouldn't it? But guess what? God came through. Every single day, in fact, for 40 years, God provided the Israelites what they needed. God came through. And you know what? God does the same thing for us today. This past week as I was working on this message, uh, I was thinking a little bit about my anxiety, which I've talked to you before. I talked to you about a couple of weeks ago. And as I've sort of examined kind of the anxiety that I struggle with, one of the things I've realized is that the vast majority of my anxiety, I would say 80, 90% of my anxiety, you know where it comes from? It comes from bringing tomorrow's troubles into today. 80, 90% of my anxiety, it comes from worrying today about how I'm going to deal with tomorrow. And I don't think I'm alone in that. So I think those of us who suffer from anxiety, I think there's this little game that our mind plays. And the game goes something like this. You know, we sit here and we go, yeah, I made it through yesterday. Right? God gave me what I needed to make it through yesterday, physically, emotionally, spiritually. He gave me what I needed. And sure, I'm, I'm making it through today so far. Maybe it hasn't been entirely easy, but... God's given me physically, emotionally, spiritually what what I need to make it through today. So I've made it through yesterday. I've made it through today. But here's what our mind does. But what about tomorrow? I have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring. And my cupboards are bare. My resources are limited. My strength is depleted. How in the world am I going to make it through tomorrow? And that's where a lot of our anxiety lies. But here's what we need to realize. When do you think God is going to give us what we need? To make it through tomorrow. When do you think God is going to give us what we need to make it through tomorrow? He, he's going to give us what we need to make it through tomorrow, tomorrow. You see, the principle of manna still applies today. God only promises in his word to give us what we need when we need it and not a second before. I remember years ago sitting in a the theology class with Dr. Bob Sosi at Biola. And Bob Sosi was sort of a legend at my school, had been there for a number of years, just an incredible man of God. And, and Dr. Sosi uh, told our class in this theology class, he, he told us that a few years early, the, earlier, the unthinkable happened in his family. And that is that his adult daughter died unexpectedly because of an undiagnosed heart condition without any advance warning whatsoever. Just, just collapse and die. And this is tragic, right? This is probably one of the worst things that a parent can go through. But I'll never forget what Dr. Sosi said to this class. He said, rather matter-of-factly, which is how he said most things, he said, you know, he said, God gives you what you need to make it through something like that. He said, God gives you in the moment what you need to make it through something like that. And he does. The unimaginable becomes possible because of God's gracious provision. And some of us need to hear that. You know, some of us spend so much time coming up with all these different scenarios in our mind. And worrying about how we're going to deal with all these different scenarios that we can come up with. What, what am I going to do if, if, if the biopsy comes back positive? How am I going to function if, if we have to close our business or we have to sell our house? How in the world am I gonna be able to take my aging parents in with us? How can I both care for my kids and my parents at the same time? And we, we worry about all these different things that could happen and you know what? In some ways it does make sense to wonder how we're gonna deal with all those different things because we don't have yet what we need to deal with all those different things and why don't we have it yet? Because God hasn't given it to us yet and why hasn't God given it to us yet? Because we don't need it yet. God has given us what we need to face today. And I promise you, when and if we have to go through any of those scenarios that we come up with in our mind, God will give us what we need to get through those. Think of it like this, okay? You have already made it through 100% of the most difficult days you've ever been through. God has gotten you through 100% of the most difficult deserts you have ever traveled through. Why do we doubt that God is going to help us make it through whatever is in front of us? But we do doubt, don't we? We do doubt God. And that's what leads me to the best thing we learn about God from this passage. And that is this, and this is the answer to the question I asked at the beginning. Even when we doubt God, brothers and sisters, even when we question God, God still stays true to his promises. Even when we don't trust God, God still stays true to the promises that he has made us. We also see that in this passage. Back in verse 4 of Exodus 16, when the manna is first mentioned, God actually tells Moses that the manna is going to be a test for the Israelites. God wants to test to see how much the Israelites trust him. Well, just so you know, the Israelites fail that test. Not only do some of them try to keep it over at night, even though they were told not to, but some of them also go out on the Sabbath to see if God really isn't going to provide on that day. The Israelites fail the test. But despite the fact that the Israelites fail the test, still God provides for them. For 40 years, still God provides for them. Why? It's simply because a promise is a promise. God promised to provide for his people, and he wasn't going to stop that even if they failed him. This is the characteristic of God that Paul picks up on in 2 Timothy 2.13 when he says this. And by the way, I think this is one of the most underrated verses in the entire Bible. Listen to this verse, 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are unfaithful, Paul writes, God remains faithful for he cannot deny who he is. If we are unfaithful, Paul says, God remains faithful because God cannot deny who he is. Even if we fail him, God will not go back on his promises. Why? Because God is a promise keeper. Even when we fail to trust God, God stays true to his promises. And that's what brings me to the big so what of this message. Now I'm going to put an interesting picture on the screen. And as you look at it, it is a really interesting picture, isn't it? It's a picture of a a group of ladies, and it looks like they're on some sort of amusement park ride, a a roller coaster, or something like that. And here's what I love the most about this picture. There was a caption that accompanied this picture, and the caption said this. It said, you can either go through life like the ladies in the front row, or like the ladies in the back row. You can either go through life like the ladies in the front row, or like the ladies in the third row. And you see it in that picture, right? The ladies in the front row, they're having the time of their lives. The ladies in the back row, the ladies in the third row, they look like they're at a funeral. You can either go through life like the ladies in the front row or the ladies in the third row. And when I saw that, I thought, what a picture of what we're talking about today. Because in many ways, life is like a roller coaster, isn't it? There are ups, there are downs, there are twists and turns. Life is anything but predictable, and it's anything but stable. But there is a foundation. There is a constant to this roller coaster of life. No matter how many ups and downs we go through, no matter how many twists and turns we experience, here's what I know, okay? God is faithful through it all. God is a promise keeper. And God has promised that no matter what, no matter what, He's going to provide for us. He's going to take care of us. He's going to be with us. And He's going to do what's best, what's best for us and what's best for His glory. No matter what, that's the constant. And so that means in life we have a choice. We can, if we want, live life like the ladies in the back row of that picture. We can doubt God at every turn. We can question God at the beginning of every desert. We can worry, fear, grumble, complain. Every second of every day, we can choose to live like that uh, definitely. Or we can trust. We can have faith. We can believe that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. Just so you know, the outcome's the same no matter what. No matter how we respond, God's going to stay true to his promises. He's going to see us through each day. He's going to lead us out of the desert. He's going to get us to the end of the ride. Whether we believe that or not, Whether we trust Him or not, God's going to see us through it all. The difference lies in how much we enjoy the process. The difference lies in how much we enjoy the ride. The difference lies in whether we live like the ladies in the front row or the ladies in the back. I said it earlier, and I'll say it again. God has gotten us through 100% of the most difficult days that we've been through. God has stayed true to His promises for 100% of the of the days that we've made it through. Why start doubting him now? And that's what leads me to my close here. By far the greatest promise that God has made to us is the promise of salvation. And that's the promise of salvation that was given to us by Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. And God has actually given us a reminder of that salvation. It's interesting in John chapter six, Jesus himself refers to himself as the bread from heaven. He calls himself the manna from heaven. Jesus is the greatest gift that God has given us. And there's a reminder of the salvation that that God has given us to remember what God has done for us. And that is through communion, through the eating of the bread and through the drinking, drinking of the juice, which we believe represents the body and the blood of Jesus. We are reminded of the promise of salvation and we are reminded of what Jesus has done for us. So here's what I encourage you to do out of this message. The next time you sit down for a meal, whether it be by yourself or whether it's for friends or family or loved ones, I would suggest that at the end of that meal, you take communion together. Get some bread ready and get some juice ready. And maybe towards the end of the meal, before you take communion, reflect on God's promises. Ask the question, if you're with other people, how has God been faithful to you? How has God shown his promises to you? And then after you do that, eat the bread, which represents the body of Christ, and drink the juice, which represents the blood of Christ. And then just spend a moment thanking God for his promise of salvation that we know that God is going to stay true to. So I would encourage you at your next meal, just take communion together. I know you'll benefit from it. But as we close here right now, let me close us in a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your promises, Lord. And we thank you that you are a promise keeper and whether we trust in that or not, whether we we believe in that or not always throughout life, God, you you still stay true to your promises because that's who you are. And so God, I I pray for those right now who who need to be reminded of the fact that you have promised to provide for them. I pray for those who need to be reminded of the fact that you are with them. I pray for those who need to be reminded of the fact that you will help them see, see them through each day. I pray for those who need to be reminded of the fact that you will work everything out for their good, Lord. And I pray that we can hold on to those promises no matter what we're going through, God. And know, Father, that you're going to deliver because that's who you are. And so, God, we thank you for being the gracious God that you are, Father. And we thank you for providing for us every single day exactly what we need. And would we believe that as we wake up every single morning, Lord. And so, Father, we can't say enough how much we love you. We can't say enough how much we thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for all that you do for us. And we ask all of this in your son's name. Amen.